1: a perfect home sweet home from the small towns
5: to the big cities we bring you the stories that matter this is this is this is the our american stories podcast
3: This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. They work hard day in and day out to bring you stories from everyday Americans. And by the way, we tell the stories about this great country that may not be perfect, but sure is beautiful. If you'd like to support us in all that we do here, visit ouramericanstories.com and go to the giving tab, join our team in the work that they do. And become a part of all that's going on here. We appreciate both one time gifts and monthly donations. We are a registered nonprofit. And it's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And today, we bring you the story of how the Pilsner arrived, survived, and then thrived in America. Also, we bring you the story of 7 Eleven and the American Dream. But first, listener Tim Hennessy shares a story about a Texas grocery store's generosity and how it went viral when he posted it on his Facebook page. Very quick background.
2: I'm originally from Chicago, and we lived there many years, and then we moved to, uh, my wife and I, Dad, moved to uh, California in 1993 for an opportunity And it seemed like California was kind of like the heyday for California. Things were moving. Things were pretty good for us there. We lived there 23 years. And then um, three or four years ago, my kids decided to move to Houston. And they basically said, you know, we just can't afford to live in California. The best we could do is get an apartment for $2,500 a month. And it was just too expensive. And they didn't want to be house poor. So they moved to Texas and our heart out really honestly and we caught our, we found ourselves sitting in California at home we still have a son who's in California but we found one day we found ourselves sitting there going what are we doing here we have a grandson in Houston and we kind of you know we love California the beauty the weather it's kind of hard there's very few places in the entire world you're gonna get that kind of beauty and weather and stuff and we thought it's the best of both worlds we moved to Texas we have a lot more freedom than we have in California. Uh, we can save a lot more money before we retire, and we get to see our grandkids every single day. So, a few years ago, we decided to uh, to move. And um, you know, I find people are nice everywhere you live. You, can, you know, I think it's what you focus on. There's good people everywhere, but there's a it's a level of niceness in Texas, the people that kind of struck us as soon as we moved here. It's almost like, why are you so nice to us? What's your agenda? And <laughs> it's, it's a different kind of nice. And so that kind of niceness we recognized everywhere. It's yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am. And, and the people at, wherever you go are just a different level of nice. Um, so right around February 20th, 21, somewhere in there, 2021, it was an historic storm here in Texas. 15 degrees or below, closer to zero, a couple days uh, for a whole week, and Texas is just not built for that. When I live in Chicago, they had snow plows. They had salt for the, for the uh, roads. Here, they have, they're not built for it. They don't have that kind of stuff because it's, it's rarely that cold. Usually, maybe gets down to 30 degrees. Power was going out for f- four days, off and on. Every couple hours, it was out. Hardest part was when the water went out because you're okay. You start thinking to yourself, okay, this is getting real now. How long is this water going to be out? Is this a day, two days, three days, a week? You know, you start thinking these stories of people don't have water for a month. So, in between that, we had snow on one of the days, and when you get some snow that goes over the ice, it makes it a little bit more easy traction wise because we didn't want to drive anywhere. The roads were literally impassable, you couldn't go anywhere, you couldn't even walk on the road you'd fall down. So we got some snow, so my wife and I said, well we got a little little bit of a break. Let's go to the store. Let's get a few things for some friends. We decided to drive to a local store here called H-E-B. H-E-B is like the the dominating grocery chain in Texas. And so we pull in. We were, people were lining up. We got on the line about 50 people. We made the best of it. We were probably outside for about 20 minutes finally the the line started moving we got in the store and I realized why we were outside is they were out of carts probably because some were left in a parking lot with the snow and ice and partially because there's several hundred people in the store so we got the last of the few carts got in started shopping and about 10-15 minutes into shopping the lights went out and you literally could hear it go oh here we go again and and so we looked around at each other. It's like, well, let's just keep shopping until we're told not to shop. In the back of my mind, I kept thinking, they're gonna come along pretty soon and make us leave. I was hoping they weren't just gonna kick us out and we have to leave our stuff there, but I kind of half expected that. So we shopped for about 10, 15 minutes and my wife was gonna, oh, she said, oh, I forgot the bananas. So she, we start going over that way. And that's when one of the employees came, came along and said, hey folks, would you mind going to the front and we'll get you checked out as quickly as we can. We have a process for this, so don't worry, we'll get you out here as quickly as we can. So of course we go up and we get in line and it's probably 10, I would say 10 to 12 people in front of us. Most people had full baskets, bunch of people behind us, I don't know, maybe 10, 12, I didn't really look, but there's a ton. So I thought, this is gonna take a long time because there was about 15 other lines, people going from the front to the back of the store because everybody's checking out at the same time. So in my mind, I even said to Deb, my wife, I said, well, this is gonna take a long time. Are they gonna get calculators out? What are they gonna do? We weren't sure. So I thought, well, maybe we're just waiting for the power to kick back in and maybe they have a generator. So maybe 10, 20 minutes, somewhere in there went by. We didn't, we barely moved. I don't even know if we moved up one cart. And then all of a sudden, within a few minutes, we started moving. And as we moved up, a woman's employee says, uh, do you guys have any alcohol? Like, look in our carts. And I said, no, but if you're giving out drinks, I could use one right now, you know, just kind of make it fun. I like to have fun with people. And so within a few minutes, uh, I mean, literally just a couple minutes, we were ushered to an open aisle and they waved us over. We go over there. My, my wife starts putting stuff on the conveyor belt. And the woman said, oh, don't put anything up there. We won't be able to bag anything today. So I thought oh, it was kind of weird, okay. So we pushed our car to the end where she stood by the cash register. And um, she looked at us, looked at our groceries, and kind of motioned with her arm, like, go home and be safe, you know, drive home safe. And we looked at her like, I even said, uh, who, how do we pay? And as, as, as I'm saying this, I'm watching all these carts go out the door. And it kind of hit us like, wow, they're literally sending us home without asking us who who we are, looking at what we had, counting anything, expecting anything from us. And I turned to my wife, she's tearing up. It was just this wonderful gesture of this company, because we always want to bash companies that, that they're all for profit. This company is literally letting 200 people walk out of this store without paying a single dime, without asking who you voted for, what's your social status, who you are, nothing, because, quite frankly, because you're our customer. Just an amazing thing. So we started leaving and we're like, this is unbelievable. And we, we get to the, the door, and there's about eight to 10 other employees standing there and kind of greeting us, it felt like a wedding. Like, okay, everybody go home, be safe, they're waving at us. And it became like a festive mood. And um, I turned at the edge of the door And i said oh wait a minute i forgot the filet mignon you know and they all busted out laughing they knew what what it was what i was saying i'm just kidding of course you know part of you thinks man i should have got the filet mignon you know but of course we're all laughing about it and we started getting the parking lot and it was very hard to maneuver the carts because of bumps of ice and snow and without bags in the carts stuff started falling out of people's carts and you could see everybody helping each other holding on to other people's carts in front of, behind them, helping them. And we all do this every day. But in that moment, it felt like I want to do even more. It's just, you know, given that, that act, of, when someone gives you an act of kindness and generosity for no reason, first you feel, I don't know, a little guilty, because um, I never felt entitled, but I felt a little, not guilty, I don't know what the, the, the right word is, but it felt like, wow, we didn't deserve that. Can I give to somebody else? Who, may, who they need help, you know. So with that in mind, we, I got back to my car, we started driving home. We were talking about, wow, you don't see that every day, you know, a, a store like HEB just did that for its customers. So I told my wife, I said, um, I'm gonna write about this story and I'm gonna post it on Facebook and just share with a few of my friends. This last year, we've gotten bombarded with nothing but bad news. And maybe even the last decade or two, it just seems like we get more and more bad news. And because I just saw that as, this is the America that I know and love. And that's what I was going to title the story. This is the America I know and love. Not the stuff you see in the newspaper, or on the news all day, you know, all the time. So, uh, and my wife was thinking about it for a second. She said, why don't you just call it the heart of America? and i just liked what she said it just hit me them i said you know what that's what i'm going to call it because it kind of is more succinct this is the heart of america it truly is so then she said you know i took tim i took a picture and i said you did she goes yeah i didn't really want people to know i was taking it and she said i just want through her tears she said i i just captured that moment for us it's just it was just a unique thing to see i said well send me that picture i'll include that with the post and i literally just wrote it I actually gave it to my wife in a Word document. She's my editor <laughs> because I'm not the best speller. I hate to admit that. Uh, I read voraciously, but I cannot spell for nothing. Thank you, God, for a spell check. Like the word separate, forget it. I put it E, A, I don't know if it's E in the middle, A, or, anyway, I'm getting off topic here. So she, she's edited for me um, and I just posted it. And then I think our power went out again a little while later. And then we woke up on, on that the, the Wednesday after I posted it. And then sometime in the middle of the day, I thought, well, I'll be check my Facebook uh, post just to see if, you know, a couple hundred of my friends, what they thought of that story. And I thought, oh my, how does this happen? At that time, it was like 12 or 13,000 shares, a couple thousand comments and probably 10,000 likes. And I'm like, I don't have that many friends. How does this happen? How does this happen? And I actually called a friend of my daughter's who works for Facebook. And I said, Jesse, what the heck? And she says, Tim, what the heck? I said, well, you're supposed to, you're the expert. Don't tell me what the heck. How does this happen? And she said, I don't know, Tim. I think the story hit a nerve at the right time. I think people needed to hear good news through all this. So then then I got worried, okay, I did not expect this to go like this. I was liter- literally sharing with a few friends. So I got worried, so I called the store, said, have you heard about a Facebook post about your store going viral? He goes, yes, we did. I said, is it okay? And it was the manager I asked for it. And I said, is it okay? Because I didn't really, I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't want to get anybody in trouble. He said, no, it's all good, sir. I got the impression without him saying it that that is a very positive thing for that store right so but I wanted to call their corporate office too for a couple reasons one I wanted to double check that it was okay and two I wanted to find out what their charities were and so I got a hold of somebody there and they said the local food bank is one of their charities and and also they directed me to their website and she also mentioned this uh, place called Lady Lodge It's, it's a family Christian-based camp where people go and the, the donations help pay for families who can't afford it. And there's no cell service or internet. It's literally you're going camping and it's a few hours away from us here in Texas. And so we, my wife and I wrote checks to both of them for more than what we would have paid in groceries because we felt like this was such a great gesture, it was our way of giving back somehow, right? But the next day, that story just kept getting bigger and bigger and it was over 30,000 shares, 3,200 comments more likes than I could ever count and then the phone started ringing. I got text messages email messages, direct messages from various news organizations, CNN, Washington Post, Fox News, NBC People Magazine ABC basically the who's who of, of media. And then I still got a little bit nervous about it because I thought well I don't want this company this is a very private company, very Uh, Humble Company, they do a lot for the community. HEB does a lot. They're almost always, whenever there's a disaster, they're almost always the first there for water and food supplies. They're a very generous company in Texas, family-oriented. And so I called them one more time. I said, you know, I've been doing these interviews. I don't know if anybody saw it, but have somebody call me back and let me know if you want me to continue or stop because I'll stop today because it's not about me. I just wanted to... uh, not necessarily to promote the store, but just to show the goodness that there is in this country because there's a lot of good things in this country. We see it every single day. We see it all across this country. We see it in our neighborhoods. How many of us go out every day and we help somebody, but it doesn't make the news because that's what that's what we're supposed to do. That's what God wants us to do. That's why we're here. We're here to, to be good to each other, right? And so... They called me back. One of their uh, their corporate uh, spokespeople called me back. I don't know if it was the next day or that same day, I can't remember. And we talked for about a half hour on the phone. And he said, Tim, he goes, let me just tell you something. He goes, we're not gonna stop what you're doing. We love what you're doing. We're getting a lot of phone calls right now about if that story is true or not. And all we do is tell them, yes, it happened, but that's as far as they go. And basically because they don't want to toot their own horn. They could easily easily point to their back and go, look at the name of my back of my jersey. This is H-E-B, aren't we great? But that's not what they want to do. That's how great of a company they are. Oh, I wanted to add one more thing. So, and this is for my wife, so I have to give her credit. This is my wife, Debbie. Um, I have to give her credit for this because this is her, she says this all the time. And that's why she took that picture, too. She says this following phrase, God only needs a moment. Right? God only needs a moment. And, 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 and the phrase that I, one of my favorite quotes that I kind of live my life by is from Albert Einstein. And it goes like this. Live your life as if there are no miracles, or everything is a miracle. I probably botched that quote, a little nervous right now, but... um, So, I live it as if everything's a miracle. And when you look for good things, you look for the miracles in life, it may seem silly to go, wow, you think it's a miracle? This guy let these people walk out the store? I think it is. That's what we look for, the moments. And again, i got to give my wife credit for it. God only needs a moment. You look for these you, these things, you see them everywhere. They don't get reported all the time, but we see them. And I'll give you an example of another moment or, or, or a miracle um, happened during the same week. I saw this story. It was in San Antonio, Texas. I believe it was a 7-Eleven. And it was either the owner or the manager who wrote this on Twitter. And she went to her store one morning and all the water that's left out outside on pallets was missing. She said over a hundred cases of water were missing. And she thought, well, I guess people needed water because we're having issues, so she understood it. And she goes to open the door of the the 7-Eleven and there on the floor was $620 in all kind of different denominational bills. So in other words, it wasn't just one person who just put in $620. They put, they slid through the slit of the door. Not like a mail slot. You know, like some doors a mail, the slit of the door. They slid in $620 in ones, twos, tens, twenties, and there's a picture of it. That is a miracle, right? So we see these all over the place. And, and, and I'll give a couple other examples. I don't know if this is a, a great example, but in my neighborhood, um, and probably all across texas people were out walking uh driving when we could going house to house checking on people how are you doing did you know you can melt snow and ice to, to flush to put in the back of your toilet to flush you i didn't know that okay great and we see this everywhere all over this country like i said a thousand times a day how many times have you heard of a police officer and this happens all the time Maybe somebody standing in front of them doesn't have enough money to pay for their food or whatever, and that officer, they're not to they're not really making the most money in the world, will take out their own money and pay for that, right? Every once in a while we hear that story, but that happens all the time, those kind of things. So, miracles do happen every single day. This world is a miracle, and we're all here, and the sun rises every day and sets every day. We take it for granted, but that's still a miracle. You know, when I go turn the lights on now, I think twice about it because we didn't have it for a few days. When I turn the faucet on, I think twice about it now. A week ago, it was like not even in your mind. Those are miracles if you if you think about it that way. That some water come from some plant, it's treated, the electricity is coming from someplace. It comes into my place, and it gives me light, gives me the power for my refrigerator, my TV, my stove, all these things. We take it for granted. We have delegated so many things in our lives as just mundane, but they're miracles.
3: And you've been listening to Tim Hennessy. And by the way, we didn't hear from his wife Debbie. But my goodness, that line of hers, "God only needs a moment," so true, and his that miracles are everywhere. And that is true too, the heart of America. He's right about this. We are bombarded with bad news. And this is the America we know and love. And by the way, if you love what you're listening to and to the stories we bring you every week, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us out whatever platform, Apple Music, or any other kind that you listen to us on. And by the way, we encourage you to send your stories to us that's what Tim did, and we have so many of our favorites that come from you, the listeners. Send your stories to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com, and click on the Your Stories tab. We can't wait to hear them. Up next, the story about the Pilsner. Tom McAtelly, author of Pilsner, How the Beer of Kings Changed the World, tells the story of how an experimental drink in the Austrian Empire became America's favorite Drink. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with a story. We Americans enjoy our
5: beer. In 2018, we consumed about 6.8 billion gallons of it. And by far the most popular style we drink is Pilsner. Here's Tom Accatelli, author of Pilsner, How the Beer of Kings Changed the World, with more.
6: Pilsner is the dominant style of beer in the world and has been for well over 100 years. All the major brands you can think of, Budweiser, Bud Light, Miller, Miller Lite, Heineken, Pabst, are based on Pilsner or imitations of the Pilsner style. They're everywhere. They're, you know, every grocery store, bar, gas station, bodega, you name it. It's Pilsner. It was first made in a small, what was then a sort of a mid-sized city of the Austrian Empire called Pilsen and what's now the Czech Republic, the local aristocrats in Pilsen who had the right to brew and sell beer locally, they were getting tired of their beer, their local beer getting beaten out of the marketplace by beers from Bavaria just over the border. So the aristocrats in Pilsen are like, we're tired of losing market share to these guys, these Bavarians making these lighter, better beers. So we gotta co-op what they're doing, right? So you can imagine, you know, they, they, they literally have meeting, meeting after meeting, memos and, and, and manifestos about how to compete with Bavarian beer and knock it out of the marketplace in Pilsen. So what they do is they hire a Bavarian brewmaster named Josef Grohl, who uses Bavarian know-how, Bavarian recipes, Bavarian techniques. In other words, just sort of imports German technique and style over the border and makes this beer for the, the burgers for the aristocrats of Pilsen to sell. And he ends up making in late 1842. Now it's lost to history whether Grohl himself intended for this to happen. but the specific ingredients he used, and the water quali- the local water quality, which was very important to brewing then as now, turned out the lightest looking beer anyone had ever seen up to that point. Before that, beer for millennia is dark and it's thick and it's rich it's like liquid bread and they weren't the color of sunshine pilsner was this lager made in pilsen in 1842 you know it looks beautiful right it, it's bubbly it's clear it's uh, crisp when you taste it it's, it's a beer that's unlike any anybody has ever seen right from the get-go pilsner is extremely unique and it quickly grows in popularity first in the austrian empire then in Central Europe, and then basically uh, all, you know, all over the world to the present day. It picked you know, the best time to be born and the best time to leave home. Because it's born in this kind of supernova of technological change and political change, especially in Europe. The technological change you know, is, is everything from the mass production of glass, which had never happened before in, in the history of humanity, because Pilsner looks great in a glass, it looks great poured, it looks great in glass bottles. The technology for fighting bacteria and infection, which can be deadly to beer and deadly to beer sales, comes along around at the same time. Brewing techniques, temperature measurement, all that is sort of blossoming around the same time as as Joseph Grohl is doing those first batches of Pilsner and Pilsen. And then you also have stuff like the railroad for better shipping. The first mechanical refrigeration starts up because Pilsner, like most lager beers, unlike ales, tastes better cold. It's easier to preserve them too. But the political change is really what spurs Pilsner's story from sort of a local legend to you know worldwide fame. There's all these revolutions and counter-revolutions in Europe and A lot of Germans and Czechs fled the turmoil. They were done with these wars and fighting and they settled in the United States, a lot of them. There were were about a a million Germans emigrated to the U.S. in the 1850s alone. They find the most opportunity farther inland, so they settle in cities like Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Louis. They take their preference for lighter lagers and lighter-colored lagers and lighter-tasting lagers to the United States. And, of course, the dominant style by then is Pilsner. And so that's how it spread, basically. Anywhere you had Germans in the mid to late 19th century, you were going to have beer, and the beer was overwhelmingly going to be Pilsner. Wherever Germans go, they bring this, this Jones for the lighter lager.
5: And with the winds of the Industrial Revolution at their back, these immigrants created some of the most recognizable names in the beer industry today, including Anheuser-Busch.
6: Eberhard Anheuser and Adolphus Busch were father-in-law and son-in-law, and they became business partners. Adolphus Busch basically rescued his father-in-law's business. He had a brewery that was failing, right? So after the Civil War in the early 1860s, Adolphus Busch begins to build the Anheuser-Busch Brewing Company into this mega conglomerate. And he does it largely behind a recipe for a Pilsner imitation that he gets via a business partner of his who had been traveling in Europe and knew of the popularity of this lighter colored, lighter tasting lager called Pilsner. Brings it back to Adolphus Bush, says, can you make this for me? He does. And he eventually acquires the rights to it. They name it after a Czech town called Budweis or Budweiser. And that becomes just a sensation from the late 1870s onward. For many of the reasons that you know, Pilsner itself became a sensation, is that it just looked good. It looked modern. It looked good in a glass. It looked good in a bottle. Anheuser-Busch is the biggest bottler of any foodstuff at the time in the late 19th century, and it just takes off from there. I mean, I, I don't, you know, there was sort of an arms race in the late 1900s between Frederick Papp's and Adolphus Busch. To have kind of the biggest brewery in the U.S. and perhaps the world, and they were both racing each other with pilsners. In Bush's case, it was Budweiser. In Pabst's case, it was uh, what we you know now know as the Pabst Blue Ribbon. Because of this arms race, they uh, end up just sort of sweeping all before them, competition-wise, and end up as you know the kings of brewing by 1900, by you know the 19 teens, and because of that, because of that race, Pilsner gets more and more ubiquitous and more and more unavoidable.
5: And increasingly on the radar of temperance advocates wanting to end the sale and consumption of alcohol in the U.S.
6: Back into the 1900s, right, there's sort of a movement to improve the United States. You know, in many, many cases, well-intentioned. And one of the ways to improve it is to to cut back on overconsumption of alcohol. The US in the early 1900s was not a beer country. It was whiskey, whiskey and cider. And Americans drank a tremendous amount compared with the rest of the world. European visitors who chronicled their visits to the US always noted how much and how frequently Americans drank. So there was an understandable temperance movement to sort of slow things down. Then what happens is you have this mass immigration of Germans and they bring with them a different way of drinking and a different type of drink they bring lighter lagers which are much much lower in alcohol than whiskey and they drink it in beer gardens and the beer gardens are family affairs and the Germans are still you know despite the fact that they drink this beer noted for their industriousness and their hard work so it sort of clashes with what the temperance advocates have been telling people for decades that if you drink you know you're going to be derelict and desolate and you know not, not contribute you're not going to get up for work the next morning etc cetera, etc cetera. german americans disrupt this narrative and so the temperance movement has to turn its efforts toward combating beer as well. And they also have to turn their efforts toward combating the brewers behind the beer. And they have a very tough time of it, but they get a boon from World War I. America's enemy in World War I, of course, was the German Empire. So the temperance advocates seize on American skittishness about German culture war ends in late 1918 prohibition passes in 1919 takes effect in 1920 I don't think it would have happened with the speed it did without the war and the anti-German feelings that the war engendered it's a, just a fascinating slice of life and culture when you realize what happened over those 70 years you know and and, and how Pilsner and beer is right in the middle of it
5: With animosity towards Germans and German culture at an all-time high after World War I, the 18th Amendment was passed, ushering in Prohibition. With their market dried up, brewers were forced to set aside beer and make other products to survive. Pilsner was put on hold.
6: Some of them made near beer. They switched to, you know, alcohol that could be used in in, um, machinery but a lot of them didn't survive. It's a much smaller field of brewers in the United States post 1933 when prohibition ends. And what that means is the ones who could survive, who could get by, who could skirt disaster, they come out with the ability to grow very fast. Their their reach expands and you see this massive consolidation in the industry where the big get bigger and the smaller kind
5: of disappear. Before Prohibition became the law of the land, there were over 4,000 breweries in the United States. By 1975, there were 115.
6: And that's where I think Pilsner starts to have a wider cultural effect. Marketing Pilsner becomes such a you know, an acute focus of these bigger breweries that they start to really innovate when it comes to advertising and marketing. So you get the quirky beer jingles, you get the cartoon characters, you get the sports partnerships, any number of things that we all know today and we can probably remember our favorite taglines like taste great, less filling, all you ever want in a beer and less. I mean all all those, you know, the champagne of beers, etc. etc. That comes about after Prohibition and helps Pilsner grow its reach wider and helps these breweries get that much bigger. The Budweiser's, the Millers, they grew and grew and grew. Pilsner becomes so big you couldn't get away from it. The first big change comes when the Miller Brewing Company, which had had recently been acquired by Philip Morris, the tobacco giant, they were laser focused on growing from, I think they were the eighth or ninth biggest brewery in the country, they wanted to be number two behind Anheuser-Busch. They know that they're not gonna be number one. Anheuser-Busch is so far ahead of any brewer, maybe except for Heineken in the entire world. And how do they do that? They introduce Miller Lite.
1: And this is the one I'm holding on to. Light beer from Miller. It has a third less calories than a regular beer. It's less filling and it tastes terrific too. I also love the easy opening can.
6: Miller Light kind of changes the game. There had been light beers before, but they, you know, the marketing had always been toward people who maybe wanted to diet or to lose weight. But the problem is if they're trying to lose weight, they're not going to look to beer at all, whether it's lower in calories or not. So Miller Lite basically presented itself as quote, a low calorie beer that tasted like beer. They wanted to be known as just beer, but with low calories. So they, uh, they came up with the famous tagline.
4: Light beer from Miller, everything you always wanted in a
3: beer and less.
6: And it became this kind of sensation, you know, light beer. Just a quick aside, you know, this is another example of Pilsner's influence. You know, Miller Lite put a fine Pilsner right on the bottle. You can still see it on the labels today, but you know, light, L-I-T-E or L-I-G-H-T seeped into all sorts of foodstuffs from that point on in the 1970s. So you had light everything, but back to beer. So light beer happens and it becomes, you know, so Pilsner, you know, becomes even even bigger, and more influential.
5: The United States had essentially become a beer desert, but things were about to change that would lead to a whole new industry being developed by innovating entrepreneurs.
6: You had a growing number of people mostly homebrewers and their fans, who wanted more variety, who were tired of these beers that all seemed to look and taste the same. And indeed they did. They start meeting sort of underground because homebrewing was illegal in the United States, just sort of a quirk of post-Prohibition America. The federal government forgot to legalize it. They legalized winemaking coming out of Prohibition, but not homebrewing. But then that happens in 1978. There's a push on from California, from some lawmakers and homebrew enthusiasts in California to have homebrewing legalized at the federal level. That happens in early 1978 and takes effect in 1979. But what does that do? That sort of brings these homebrewers out of the shadows and people begin openly sharing information and they begin openly selling and sharing materials and recipes. So you have this sort of blossoming of underground entrepreneurial spirit turning pro. And that's where you get the sort of, the the first proliferation of smaller breweries in the United States is the late 1970s, early 1980s. So you have this infusion of knowledge and you have this counter reaction to the rise of light beer. If you wanted a, a richer tasting beer in the 1970s, up to that point, you had to make it yourself or you had to like chance upon it while, you know, in Europe or something like that. But suddenly, you start to see the growth of microbrewing. brewing Pilsner is still dominant, and it's still dominant today, but you now have just sort of this kaleidoscope of styles and breweries.
5: Today, there are over 8,000 breweries in the United States. That's over double of what existed before Prohibition. And a big reason why these breweries exist is the pilsner and its oversaturation in the market during the 1970s but everything old is new again and today the pilsner is having a remarkable resurgence among even the people who tried to get away from it all those years ago you
6: know history repeats itself and beer is very much sort of a cyclical is a cyclical thing i mean people discover and rediscover different styles and different approaches all the time and i think pilsner is just kind of having a moment because Craft brewing was a reaction to Pilsner's rise. And now I think the sort of rise of Pilsner within craft brewing is a reaction to craft brewing's rise. The defining feature, the defining characteristic of IPAs is bitterness. It's, you know, that bitterness from hops. And so the sort of overwhelming prickly crispness and, and, you know, alcoholic kick. And so if you want something different, what do you do? You know, you, you turn to a lighter tasting, sweeter beer. And that's Pilsner. You could not have had this counter reaction toward Pilsner without the rise of the bitterer IPAs and you know, the heavier seasonal beers and then porters and ales and all that. Without those, you wouldn't have this reaction. But again, you wouldn't have those without the rise of Pilsner originally. So it's kind of funny, they all sort of intersected. And and there's no end in sight, too. That's the thing, there's this, you know, in many countries, federal governments or national governments regulate style and ingredients and proportions of ingredients in wine and spirits. But that's not the case for beer. You can call yourself whatever you want in the U.S. as long as you follow some, you know, guidelines as far as what you put on your label. You have to use a certain proportion of Merlot grapes if you're gonna call yourself a Merlot, if you're gonna call your wine a Merlot you don't have to use a certain proportion or a certain type of hop if you're going to call your beer an IPA. So it lends itself to this experimentation in the marketplace and I I think that's kind of a wonderful thing because it creates this experimental dynamic and that brings everything full circle too because what is Pilsner to begin with? It was somebody 170 years ago experimenting with existing styles and ideas until they came up with something new. And that's still going on today.
3: And a special thanks to Monty Montgomery for that piece. And Monty's, I believe Monty's, passion is beer, sampling every kind possible. Also, Tom Acatelli, a special thanks to him. He's the author of Pilsner, How the Beer of Kings Changed the World. And I keep thinking about that line, where Germans go, they bring their Pilsner And think about that with Italians, too, and their contribution with food, and Mexican-Americans, Chinese-Americans. And this is what we do here. We eat each other's food, and then we marry each other. And it's such a unique thing how we live and love in this country. And a special thanks to our sponsors at Hillsdale College for making this show possible. And all of our history stories particularly are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale And if you want to take part in some great, great college courses, you need not go to Hillsdale. Just go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for their free online courses. They're easy to use and they're free to use. Again, go to hillsdale.edu. Finally, former CEO of 7-Eleven, Jim Keys, tells the story of how their company has led countless immigrants to the American dream.
7: Around the time the company filed for bankruptcy, I went to my mentor at the time, the person who had encouraged me to come to 7-Eleven, a guy named John Thompson. He was the son of the founder of 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven started in 1927 with an ice house, an ice dock in Oak Cliff, just south of Dallas. And it was selling 50-pound blocks of ice to people to put in their, uh, quote, their ice box. Literally, there was no refrigeration at the time. You couldn't just plug in a refrigerator. So... Uh, it's hard to imagine that in 1927 we were still doing this. And how did you get ice to Dallas, Texas? So they were a very successful company, but it was quite a process to mine ice literally from the north, get it to the south, store it uh, in, a, in an environment with no refrigeration. They had to store the ice literally underground, and to sell it in small blocks that people could put in their ice box to keep their their milk and their eggs cold. So uh, I, I went to John Thompson and said, "Should I leave the company? Uh, have I made a bad..." career choice here you know I've only been here for five years I'm still a pretty young guy you're bankrupt we're bankrupt people are saying 7-eleven has no need to exist anymore because grocery stores would open 24 hours everyone else sold beer and cigarettes and he said that's precisely the problem he said if you go back he said I'll just tell you what my daddy told me the story of the Frigidaire being invented sometime around 1928 he said here we were sold selling ice and we would have gone out of business by 1930 but my uncle Johnny Green, he said, started asking customers what they want. And what they told him was, We don't come here for the ice. We come here for the convenience of buying ice from you. Or how else are we going to get ice, right? So you make it convenient. Well, now we've got frigid air. We don't need ice anymore. We've got our own refrigerator to keep things cold. Why don't you sell us things to put in that more conveniently than having to run to the grocery store? And so they did. So that literally was the birth of the first convenience store. 7-Eleven, that was called U-Totem at the time, And, uh, and they emerged from there. John's lesson to me was that, he said, Jim, if you dial forward to 1990, 1991, we've gotten ourselves to the point now where we sell beer, soft drinks, and cigarettes, because those things used to be more convenient to buy here than somewhere else. But everybody sells those now, so your job is to find things that people need more conveniently, and if you can do that, there's no reason. Like he said, "Convenience will never go away. Beer and cigarettes may diminish, but convenience will never die." And I took him. I took him to heart. I stayed with the company, uh, started becoming obsessed with finding things, whether it was uh, a, a multifunction ATM that we could put in every store, uh, prepaid phone cards that I found in Asia and brought back to the United States. Um, a beer with an aluminum bottle that you see now, you know, everywhere uh, that we use to differentiate. I found that product in Asia and brought it back here to the United States and convinced Budweiser to make it first. uh, Lots of ways to innovate with convenience and that differentiation gave us 10 years of improved same-store sales and, and helped make my career. I talk a lot about the American dream now. Uh, and I talk a lot about being the beneficiary of the American Dream. But I never really understood it or talked about it in personal terms until I discovered from my first generation 7-Eleven franchisees what the American Dream really was. And that occurred in a backwards way. Again, it occurred through crisis, through catastrophe. It happened uh, on Um, 9-Eleven. I was on my way to work. I was actually stopping at the office to pick up a bag and head to New York City on 9-11. By the time I got to the office, of course, the first tower had been hit and my flight was canceled and we were all gathered around the TVs trying to figure out what was going on. And it wasn't long. It was probably right after the second tower fell and there was now confirmation that this was a terrorist attack that we started getting inbound calls about franchisees. Um, We had, in the worst case, right in Chicago, we had an off-duty police officer go up to one of our franchisees, a Sikh, Indian the gentleman, put a gun to his head, said, go back home. You just blew up the World Trade Center. So it was a blanket stereotype of everyone in our stores from Indians to Pakistanis to Mexican immigrants who were running a store or in a store who were perceived to be the problem. That was a wake-up call for all of us. We invoked our Y2K protocol, which is, interestingly enough, we had just come through Y2K without any incident. But thankfully, we put a a protocol in place that allowed us to communicate with every single store on an hourly basis in case there were problems. So we put that protocol in place, and we're shocked at the number of incidents that were occurring all over the country in our stores, where first-generation Americans were being persecuted for their image not even their religion or their or their ethnicity just for their image in the store as non- American perceived to be non- American so we we put a number of things in place we were the first to reach out to the American Red Cross and said we want to bury our stores in red white and blue. We did the little red, white and blue ribbons and started selling them for a dollar with a contribution going to the Red Cross we ended up raising like 300 million bucks in the first 30 days to be able to help uh, in some way but our our objective was somewhat selfish. We wanted to to Americanize the stores and deflect this this um, perception that that people had that we were not American. Um, following that, we I began to talk to franchisees. Why why are we? You know, we had been the butt of Jay Leno's jokes, David Letterman's jokes. Jay Leno one time gave me an award here in Dallas, and when I walked off stage, everyone was laughing, and I didn't understand why they were laughing. And I sat down and was told he just as soon as you walked off stage said can you believe it a guy from 7-eleven who speaks English and and, and so I, I realized we've got a we've got a bad image here that is is not I mean maybe it's maybe it is true Why why are we so heavily minority in our stores and I started asking franchisees what how'd you get here why did you become a 7-eleven franchisee and the stories were all very much the same they were ironically they were my story I came from nothing, or, or I came from a country where I had things and I came to this country with nothing. I came here with $500 in a suitcase, and I knew that hard work in this country would pay off. And so, I found that if I go to a 7-Eleven store, I can work on my own. I can either work for another franchisee, and if I work really hard, they'll help me save enough money to get my own business, and then the harder I work, the more I can make. And if I want two stores or three stores, I can get those. That's 7-Eleven, that's Subway, that's McDonald's. It's the same story, and many of the franchisees are related. And so if you go to a place like Los Angeles, I found there are interrelated families where, you know, one family would be successful, and they'd invite another family to come work in their store, and then that would shoot off five more franchisees. And and I realized this is the American dream. It's what these people, they've discovered the American dream. Here and in, in our own backyard, we have people that think there are no opportunities here. And they're not partaking of the American dream, so let's celebrate this. So I took them all to Ellis Island for the 75th anniversary of 7-Eleven. We were bringing a lot of international people to Ellis Island, it sort of freaked out the uh, park police, and the, but we got approvals to do this, we had, we had a massive event there, and I did it on Ellis Island on purpose to celebrate the diversity of 7-Eleven. We had uh, one of those beautiful things, we had a parade of 135 little kids, each carrying the flag, of a of a country that was represented by our franchisees. All our franchisees from all over the world, from from China, from Taiwan, Sweden, from from everywhere, all came in. We had we had literally 135 or so nationalities represented in the fireworks and the, the whole thing on Ellis Island. But I gave a speech and I brought up a guy who was the head of the franchisee organization. And he and I had discovered that we both lived in the same building in New York City. It was uh, called the College Residence Hotel. It was a little by the day or maybe by the hour kind of hotel. It was a pretty shady place. It was all, all I could afford. It was all he could afford. We discovered that we lived there at the same time and that I was staying there because I couldn't afford a place in New York when I was in Columbia University. I literally drove back and forth because gas was cheaper than an apartment until I found this place that I could actually afford. He was staying there because he came 500 bucks in his pocket and a suitcase. So here we were, two very poor individuals with different paths. I went to Columbia University, ended up at 7-Eleven, became CEO of the company. He stayed in that franchise store, got a second store, a third store, became franchisee of four or five stores in Long Island. He was ironically making more money than I was at the time. But those are two exact outcomes, celebrating the American dream. We both told our story on Ellis Island. Celebrating the American dream, both different paths, but both classic examples of the American dream. My favorite franchisee story at 7-Eleven.
3: And what a beautiful story. And we're talking about Jim Keys. And we're talking about franchisees and the American dream. 20% or more of all businesses are, by the way, franchisees and franchisors. This new way of doing business that America invented. Well, it's just so much of our economy. And that immigrant story that he tells, well, I know it's my family's story. A Lebanese immigrant comes and opens an embroidery factory, and an Italian immigrant opens a pizza parlor that turns into a restaurant. And this is the American dream. Both of them had trouble with the language, and then the next generation did. Both of them looked different and sounded different than other people. But Americans, we always work that out. A beautiful story, particularly going to Ellis Island. If you ever get a chance, do it. And go on July 4th. It's very special. Jersey City has induction ceremonies every year on July 4th. Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, And it is massive. And it is beautiful. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, do yourself a favor. Go back and listen to them. We've covered the story of J.C. Newman, America's oldest family-owned premium cigar company, a story about life before the FDA, and also the story of a busy mother of six who decided to befriend a retired cop, plus so many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories podcast.
4: 18 plus.